Neil Delamer is an award-winning Irish comedian, one of the top acts working the comedy scene today. He's featured on everything, uh, on RTE, the BBC, IFTA Awards, uh, Celtic Media Awards. He's produced his own shows. You've probably seen him on the Michael McIntyre Roadshow. He's played international comedy festivals all across the world, from Kilkenny to Melbourne to the Edinburgh Fringe. He used to host Montreal just for laughs. It was just a crazy time for him when the panel took off at just 25 years old he was one of the central pillars of that show and what a show it was with Dara O'Brien at the helm it took the country by storm I get into that with Neil but we learn a little bit more about Neil Delamer here in this interview that you might not have heard before about his early life in Edenderry how he found stand-up comedy having not been the funniest lad in the class in school. It is a fun chat about life and comedy and the limits of both. Uh, if you want to hear the full thing, you've got to come over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. This is a crowdfunded podcast. For the last eight years, every single Sunday, I've been bringing you the big interview with the biggest names in Irish life as they go abroad, their stories of life beyond the shores and much, much more. We can't do it without your support. Patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad is where you go. And in a couple of clicks, you get access to the full archive going right back to episode one. Ed Byrne, uh, Jason Byrne, Dylan Moore and Dara O'Brien. We've interviewed pretty much every Irish comedian worth their salt. And there's still a few more on the wish list that are still to come. We've got an awful lot more episodes locked and loaded ready for you. If you are a member and supporter of the show, you'll get to hear the full Excel version. There's a further 40 minutes of my conversation with Neil over there right now on Patreon.com. I want to give a quick shout out to the next up and coming Neil Delamere gig if you are living in Ireland. It takes place at the Cork Opera House on April 28th. It's, of course, one of these moved gigs from the pandemic. His show Liminal is absolutely brilliant. Get over there and see that liminal at the Cork Opera House on April 28th. Tickets can be gotten from neildelamere.com. But let's get to it. It's the Neil Delamere episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Neil Delamere, thanks a lot for doing Irishman Abroad. If I didn't realise that you were entering the podcast world yourself. 
Yes, I am. I, I just think the world needs more podcasts, yeah. Charles. Know yourself. <laughs> I, I think we haven't hit, hit peak podcasts yet. You're I'm now afraid, legally obliged, yeah, as yeah, a comedian yeah, to have Yeah, one. I, I just want to tip it over the edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, myself and Dave Moore, who Irish, your Irish listeners, I know you have a, a listenership around the world, but your Irish listeners will know him from um, Dermot and Dave. Hmm. On Today FM, we're doing a, a show together. So we kind of tend to converse in. Did you hear about this thing? Or this is kind of mad. That's the way we talk. We don't <laughs> greet each other like normal human beings. And I've stood in for him a couple of times on Dave's World, where he gives random facts out on the radio. So we kind of have bonded over our love of trivia. And we've worked together before. We actually wrote a sitcom pilot once before, uh, but it, we didn't kind of go anywhere. So we're doing a show called Why Would You Tell Me That? And basically one person has to explain to the other person something interesting. And then we have a guest in the second half who's an expert in that related field. And uh, so it's going to drop in a couple of weeks. Yeah, April the 27th, I think it is. Very nice. And so why would you tell me that is a phrase that I would associate with somebody telling me something gross? Terrible. Uh, so is that kind of the way this is leaning? No, I just realised that, yeah, Irish people, we do tend to look at the negative. Not, what, like, why would you tell me that? Yeah, um, something depressing. So, so to the, yeah, I, yeah, that's something I didn't need to know. I suppose it's, we just have to kind of justify taking up the other one's precious time. And Dave has about seven million children and a full time job. So I feel under a bit more pressure than he does sometimes. <laughs> but uh, for so far in a couple of episodes that we've done, uh, we have justified the, the, the wasting of the other person's time. You know, we're just it's just kind of weird, interesting things. And it's a de- it's kind of deliberately not deliberately obtuse, but deliberately niche, you know, like there's, there's, you're not under any pressure, as you well know, to, to kind of go, oh, this has to appeal to a broad brushstroke of people, you know, and a broad audience. We we can, if we want to talk about how traffic lights work or something, like we can do that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just that luxury of space and time, which is kind of the opposite of what stand up is to an extent, like we're, we operate under this I need a laugh I, I need yeah. it quicker absolutely quicker than that less words <laughs> yeah 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 you're dead right and I think and commercial radio interestingly enough you know like all those kind of audience books are done in the same way you know they'd be split into segments of I, I can't remember what it is now is it um 12 minutes or something or 15 minutes or whatever you know you know you have to play a song every so often and you're right about stand-up it's the same thing I think sometimes you know when you do your Edinburgh show and it's a bit more theatery than it is a club set I always feel that you have to gain the right to be a bit quiet for a few minutes mm. so you have to hit them and do the punchline 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 and then you can go listen here I've proven that I can be funny. Trust me for the quiet bit. I will be funny again. Don't worry. Yeah, that's an interesting view on it because there's plenty of people that think, no, you come to my speed. You come to yeah. me. And, you know, then I'll <laughs> then I'll hit you with a rapid gunfire later. But taking people to you first is, is another is another approach. I was interested to know, though, uh, if you agree with this approach that you I believe that most comics were funny before comedy in a different way. And then they learn to go down this funnel. Were you funny as a kid? uh, And in what way? I was when I was in school, I was pretty academic. My family's reasonably academic. And so I quite enjoyed school and was reasonably good at it and therefore felt 
that there was a bit of space there to be messing a bit, you know. Right. Uh, but messing within a, within a fairly harmless kind of framework or hmm. paradigm, you know, you, you'd be making smart comments in class, but not disruptive necessarily. But uh, but that's as far as it went. That that was that kind of um, sated my thirst for an audience. Like I was quite shy uh, uh, in school in terms of. I remember we had a school and um, I, I can't remember what it was, but I didn't do it because I was just, no, I'm not going to do that. A school I, play, I, I, did you say? So a you, school. Yeah, you cut I think, out there. I think it was probably a musical as well. Like, So mm. it was a full on, you know, not serious acting. So like you would think that somebody who became a comedian would, would go and do that as a kid because it's it is it's not like Hamlet. It's it's, it's probably Greece or, or South Pacific or something, you know, and it's a bit of crack as well. But I specifically remember going, no, 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 sure. What, what would happen if something went wrong, you know? And that, then, and that was the thought. Um, it was, Well, I, I don't think it even got that far. I think it would be, God, no, I'm not doing that. God, no, no, just no. Just, just, I, I want to focus on that for a second because I did the exact same thing. I, I just yeah. was like, absolutely not. No way am I doing the school show. And part of it was, let's be, call it the way it was, Neil. At the time, the agreement to do the school show was the same as coming out as gay. <laughs> <laughs> I that was the understanding in the I country. Did, I didn't think, did think of that, actually, to be honest. I, I don't even, I think... I think the wall was so high and so dense and so thick that I didn't consider beyond that. I, I just it was just a blanket no. Mm. And and funny enough, I remember people doing it who were lads who were specifically specifically I remember the lads who did it, which is interesting. You know who they they, they were kind of I suppose in Amer- in American high school terms it would be called jocks. Mm. So there was there was no sort of lack of. Um, I don't think it was considered to be flamboyant or I don't think it was considered to be anything other than just going and having the crack. But I, I didn't even get that far. It was more like, ah, no, 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 just too shy. Right. And it's weird because, you know, t- fast forward 20 years later, however many years later, you're doing a, a dancing show <laughs> on, on live television. Yeah, dressed as a matador. <laughs> yeah. dressed, dressed as... A matador who's been rolled in thumbtacks, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Rolled in glitter and thumbtacks. <laughs> the first outfit is is a bolero style jacket uh, with these gold studs, and I described it as half Joan Collins, half Colonel Gaddafi, and that's exactly what it was. <laughs> but it's weird because you get this as you get older, you get this focus. And I was talking to Angus McGreen, and Angus, who's the newsreader for many years on on um, yeah on RTE, and he was quite nervous. Uh, after the first show and, and our, our nerves had kind of calmed down a bit and uh, I, I don't know if it was he opening it or something and I just said to him I said it's only fucking dance it's all it is and I said in a couple of weeks time when, when we all leave the show people won't remember you were on the show and then in six months they might remember who won it and then in a year they might remember that you were on it and you were a bit of crack and that's it mm. and you get some sort of you get some sort of focus on that. What matters is kind of folk memory if you're if you're in the game that we're in. But of course, when you're a teenager, you think that, you know, everything that right now is going to last forever. And what happens if I fall over? You know, there are a lot of similarities, though, in what you're talking about here <clears throat> in terms of the bubble of growing up in the countryside, Midlands, Ireland, you know, and dancing with the stars. <laughs> it can feel like the only thing in the world is what's yeah. happening here and now. And yeah. I'd imagine the fishbowl of Dancing with the Stars uh, 
you know, you're probably better equipped to deal with it, probably from all these years in Edinburgh, too, that it's similar kind of summer camp feel. Anything goes. Yeah. 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 It's Irish college. Yeah. And um, Eden Derry is, you know, as Midlands as it gets, I would say. Say Newbridge and Eden Derry. Maybe Kildare is closer to Eden Derry than Newbridge. Tell us a little bit about it growing up, because I really don't feel like I know anything about where you came from, what your family was like or what, how your parents influenced you to feel like you could pursue this career that you've taken when, let's face it, families in that part of the world don't have a rich cabaret and stand up history in them. And you'd be as likely to say, I'm going to NASA as <laughs> I'm going to be a stand up comedian. Well, I suppose they can give you the broad belief in yourself and the attitude towards education and some degree of, I mean, you can have, you can be self-confident in some ways. I, I always think that, you know, when people say, oh, that person's very confident or that person isn't, I think that's, uh, that's too simplistic. I think someone is confident in certain spheres. You know, I think someone who's a brilliant Gaelic footballer might be, you know, very nervous public speaking, for example. So, you know, you could be shy, you know, shy enough to not go into the school musical, but confident enough in your academic abilities to go to university. And I suppose what my parents gave me was, particularly my mother, was a belief that we could do anything and that they would back us 100%. So while they weren't familiar with stand-up, because stand-up didn't exist. I mean, I, I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to... I mean, it existed, but not in the way it exists now, I suppose. Like, it's hard to sometimes explain to people. Like, when you and I were in school, the only stand-up on television, I think, was the stand-up show, which was Tommy Tiernan and Ardlo Hannan on BBC uh, One. They did various different, it was kind of mid-90s. They hosted different um, series of that. But there wasn't this preponderance of stuff on Dave or Comedy Central or stuff like this. You know, you couldn't look at YouTube. So... They could be forgiven for not being familiar with something that most people in Ireland weren't familiar with. It was a small town. It lost, the Midlands lost a lot of its industry after I kind of left. Those two things are not necessarily related. I don't think I was the deluded held board pneumonia and the ESP together. But <laughs> it's it, it's interesting to look at how many things have closed in the Midlands. And I think, would there, would there be an uproar if a similar number of jobs, for example, were lost in other parts of the island? I don't know. But it certainly felt like that, you know, board pneumonia, you know, contracted the ESB contracted. There was a shoe factory in Eden area when I was growing up. There was various different things and, and, and um, more than lots of other parts of the country, those jobs went away. So my father worked for Board Namona for 40 odd years. So we had a very kind of, um, I, I would say, not sheltered, but comfortable, nice, general Irish Midlands upbringing, really. My mother used to work for the civil service, but then had to give up when she, because it was a marriage ban, which just seems... Fucking hell, it's crazy. I just don't understand. Well, I do understand it, but it's just crazy to even think about that. Just getting rid of 50% of your talent when when they get married, it just seems insane. So, um, but she had so many other many other interests she was just like she was in the bridge club she was in the golf club she was in she joined the arts she organized Eden every festival she set up the citizens advice bureau she did the meals and wheels she set up the laundry for doing uh, older people's washing she um like did everything in that town you know so that that was the kind of upbringing i was brought up with 
I mean, I love hearing this stuff because to me it's a puzzle, isn't it? How how do you wind up here? Like, how do you wind up where you are right now? And oftentimes I look at dressing rooms with stand-up comedians in it and I think, God, we're all so weird. We're, you know... <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. And, and like, you know, I say it to Mikey sometimes that I'm like, you know, it, it's not, it's like the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's superpower work out that well. <laughs> superpower is how weird their upbringing was, but you know your upbringing isn't a million miles from mine. And a mother who just had a dynamo in her yes, is is a great word is a commonality. Um, did I think my ma was behind me? Whatever I decided to do. I would say maybe in spirit, but there was always a sense of, but make sure you get, you know, a, something to fall back on in oh case God, your yeah. mad idea doesn't oh, come off. Was that no, what computer I've, engineering was? Well, uh, I didn't know I wanted to be a stand-up while I was doing computer engineering. The reason I did computer engineering was because my brother had done it really. And um, I even went to the same university he went to because I hadn't any idea what I wanted to do. What I did know was that those four years were going to be a stopgap because I was thinking about law and I was thinking about medicine. And my sister's very good friend was an ER doc in 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 Manhattan. And um, I said, what's it like? And she goes, like, it's fairly hardcore, you know, it's like you, you have to want to do it. I don't think it's something that you kind of would wander into. And um, I think my considering of that might not be 100 million miles away from the fact that ER was massive at the time. And, and Doug Gross seemed to be faring very well, uh, <laughs> how, how, how well he performed in Chicago's hospitals. And then I said to my mother, I might do law. And she goes, oh, law is a clothes shop. It's a clothes shop. You have to know somebody. Um, so, OK. And then I just kind of fell into that. And, and it was only when I was in 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 college, I saw a gig. My first gig gig was in DCU. And I sat on the floor of the bar, which is called Frodo's. I don't know. Obviously, a nod to, to Tolkien. But um, the, the gig was Deirdre O'Kane, Eddie Bannon and Dara O'Brien. And uh, I remember sitting on the floor going, holy shit, what is this? This is brilliant. You know, like Dara, the Eddie, at the height of their powers before you would see them in even bigger venues. And it was kind of visceral and raw. And, you know, you're 17. Mm. And this is has a kind of a transformative experience. But I still didn't think that I wanted to do it as a career. Because I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I just wasn't familiar with that that's what people did. Yeah, let, let me, you know, there let wasn't me, the let me jump in there for a second, because <clears throat> I very much again remember having seen Tommy and Ardell host that BBC show that you're talking about. It was on late on a Saturday night and I remember they'd have people yeah. like Dom Herrera on and it, it, it was, Rock, yeah. yeah, it was very much in its, it was on the it was in the box. It was another place. It was in another country. But I remember those gigs, those student gigs that Lisa Richards would set up in these places. I remember going to the one in UCD and like people need to understand what Neil's referring to here because it, it was a light bulb moment for so many people I know, including Fred Cook, where yep. 
you just had the scales fall from your eyes as to what this entertainment could look like. Because as you know, Dara, I'm sure in that moment was creating material from your lives <laughs> yeah. in front yeah. of you. It's yeah. like a type of conjuring. Yeah, like whatever about him, if he had just been really funny with a script, that's one thing. But to see somebody do, as you say, just make it up as you go along. And then you think about six years later, I'm sitting on a desk with him mm. on his TV show. You know, it's it's I couldn't have ever foreseen that. But even when I saw when I saw that stand up gig, I kind of thought, oh, that's amazing. I'd like to try it. But I only wanted to try it once. I had no concept of it as, uh, you know, this could be a career. But I, I finished I finished the degree and it was only kind of after after the degree was over that, like you say, exactly like you say, the, the mammy and the daddy were like, well, now you've gotten that. So you have something to fall back on. And for the first few years of doing stand up, my mother would say, you know, check in with how it's going and and um, where I was playing and all the rest. And just, you know, low well, if, if it doesn't go that way, you always have the, the degree to fall back on, you know. So we've skipped the first spot that you do at the International Bar, where basically everybody has done their first bit. If it wasn't the Haypenny Bridge Inn with Tony Ferns, it was at the International Bar. And you and your friend head in there. And as you say, you have in your head that this is a bucket listy type thing. I'll do five minutes. And you could go in at that time and just ask, can I get up? They're like, fantastic. (laughs) That's five minutes of the show taken care of. It's so crazy considering what it is now. There's like a six to 12 months waiting list of people trying to get that five minutes. But you, you, are you being sincere here, Neil? Like, did you really think, no, this will be the end of it. And when did you have the moment where you realised, hold on now, I've just smoked my first cigarette and now I need need to have them all the time. I think it was more than I smoked my first cigarette. I've I've smoked my first cigarette and while I was smoking it, somebody put a nicotine patch on my eyeball (laughs) and now I really like this thing. I remember being absolutely terrified and I remember being um, learning it to the extent that I knew it backwards. Like, mm. you know, no matter what happened, um, I, will, I would have been able to do that five minutes. You know, it was it, it wasn't this kind of loose thing. I, I knew I knew it. I really learned it. And I think in those times, and I think I think even now your choices are you bring one person who you trust or you bring loads of your friends, you know, mm-hmm. I went for the the former. I said, I just bring one person. And then, you know, again, if it's not great, we will never speak of this again. <laughs> yeah, there's only really one person it. that knows about it. The, yeah. The, yeah. One person. Can kill, I can kill I, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, you know that thing in films where you, where you said to somebody who else knows about this uh, I, if, if I was that person I would say everybody knows about this you can't kill me but yeah he was he was that one person who knew about it and um, uh, it, it went reasonably well there was still there was still a wait list in those days so you had to go straight to to Tony Ferns in the Hapony as you said to get on every couple of weeks mm-hmm. and I went to him and because I wanted to do it again I don't know the exact moment of ooh can I make a living out of this? I do remember being in my job and going, if I could earn half of what I earn now in stand-up, I think I will give up my job. 
Mm. I do remember that specific thought. Now, I don't know what level of budgeting I had done to try and figure that out. But, you know, I was 21 or two. I didn't have a huge amount of outgoings at that point. So I thought uh, I, I remember that thought. I didn't know how I was going to do that. But there was there was a lot of gigs around, you know, you could you I hadn't done anything in England yet, but I thought that maybe if I did everything that was offered, you could get to that point. But I certainly I think that's when you consider it a job and mm. um, there was no sort of plan or career plan. That was just I can make a living at this and I'm, I absolutely love it. So obviously the turning point is winning the RT New Comedy Award. But before we get to that, I think it's healthy to look back on your first set and think, what was I thinking? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember what was in that set? Um, I I think there was something about communion and um, Vianetta and switching them out or something like that to try and get more people to to mass. Um, I think that was the height, to be honest with you. That was the height of sophistication. I mean, if you look back in after a year or two years, around the length of time, in the first few years and are not kind of mortified by what you said uh, mm. in your first few sets. I don't think you've developed at all. Yeah, you're not moving you along should, quick enough. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you should be. Oh, God, that's, oh, you know, but, but hopefully there's a few little bits and pieces and, oh, OK, that wasn't a bad idea. I mean, if I had that idea now, I might do something more with it. But that's the only thing I can remember from that. It's only, it was only five minutes, I suppose, you know. Richard Gill asked you a while ago, what does it take to make a great comedian? It's so, it's so funny that you mentioned Eddie Bannon, because I remember him asking me that question the first time we gigged together in London. And I said, delusional. Well, oh, this is a pretty hardcore conversation, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? It's yeah. the first time you met him. Yeah, yeah. Get- first time we properly sat down together. Um, okay. But I've always loved, as you know, long chats, <laughs> like even the car <laughs> journeys that we used to take and the conversations yeah. that we'd have going to Cork uh, universities to, to these gigs that, you know, that started you in comedy. I loved that kind of a question. And I said to him, delusion. Because if you knew how bad you were at the start, you'd yeah. never continue. Uh, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like when you say they went well, have you any recordings of them? And is it like, is this a type of mental illness that we have here? That, <laughs> <laughs> you know, comedians hear laughter louder than other people. As oh, yeah. Sometimes you can see comics who are on stage who are kind of hearing the echo or new comics hearing the yeah. echo of the laugh, really absorbing yeah. it into their soul as approval and oh, going, I, I can s- go ahead with this. I, I've seen, and yeah, and there's different levels of it at the start. I think you, you, you lose the delusion after a while, in fairness, because otherwise you don't survive. Because if, if there was too much of a of a gap between what you, how you felt the gig went <laughs> and how the audience felt the gig went, I mean, you'd never work again. Yeah. But I've certainly seen, I mean, I saw a guy once um, who, I mean, he got nothing for five minutes. I mean, not a solitary laugh, nothing. <sighs> And he walked off and it was in the Hickley Bridge and he walked off and uh, he looked directly at me and, and you know yourself, you don't know what to say. And uh, I was like, oh, um, yeah, that was, um, um, how, how, how did you, how do you feel about that or something like that? I think, I think I said something kind of fairly anodyne, you know, and he went, um, I was, I was going for three big ones, three big laughs. And I think I got, I, I landed the two of them. Now, if he had listened to that back, I mean, he did it to, to silence, like mm. tumbleweed crickets, nothing. So he... Some part of the, his brain manufactured two 
large guffaws from 40 people. Yeah. But it like, didn't happen, Jared. I know. Look, I know. And I also wonder about, you know, you saying that the delusion goes away because maybe it's replaced by something else, a much more informed belief that other people would call delusion. Because when you go on with a new bit and it it absolutely dies on its arse, but you recognise, ah, I know what I did wrong there. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, but there's that, not but, but, much but, difference between that. There is a difference, but there isn't. It's not a, a a radically different thing to the person who goes on, gets his first ever laugh and thinks, I have a career in showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would I would separate them into delusion and faith. So delusion is when, you know, when you, you're getting laughs that you just didn't didn't get. Whereas faith comes with experience, I think, where you go, I didn't get anything. You at least recognize you didn't get anything. Mm. But you have enough faith in your own ability or the idea to go, no, I can, I, I will make that. Yeah. And then you, you I, what I find interesting about stand up is how many times do you try something that doesn't work? Paddy Courtney years ago said to me, he used to try three, I think he, he tried it three times in, in three different sorts of gigs. This is what he used to try. He used to MC the International Bar and the Comedy Cellar for people who who uh, aren't comedy fans. And um, I thought that wasn't a bad rule of thumb. Now, I think I probably might try it more than that, but not not a whole lot more than that. But you do, like, the the longer you do this, the the, the more you have an idea of what might work and what might not work. Mm. And the great thing about this is that it keeps you interested in that. I was trying to explain this to somebody that it's the only art form, if you can call it an art form, that is that the audience molds. So if you're making a sculpture, you sculpt the sculpture and then you present it to the audience and you go, this is what it looks like. Whereas what we do is we get a block of marble. This isn't too pretentious. And we knock a few bits off and we look and we go to an audience, go, well, what do you think? And they go, I don't like that bit. And I do like that bit. And you go, OK. And then you hone it a bit more and then you go back to them. So they're involved in the process of making the end piece. Yeah. Um, no, I've I've heard you say this and you you mentioned uh, Jerry Seinfeld in this that he does a bit about it. That he's like, "What do you guys know about comedy?" <laughs> I mean, who the fuck are you to tell me? What's and yet we have, and yet we we have, have to, to go surrender. To you. To what are your qualifications? You've bought two drinks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But isn't it I it kind of comes back to what we first talked about in that there are people that think the audience don't know. And there's a there's a kind of a divergence of the community there. And it's probably where true alternative comedy heads off on its own run, that the more experimental weirdo comics go, no, they're going to hate this. I'm not going to show them this waiting for a referendum on its quality, they're going to hate it and hate it and hate it and hate it. <laughs> yeah. And then it'll win the Perrier. Yeah. I mean, comic, I think I love watching them. I love watching uh, and I particularly love watching people who do something that and I've spoken about this before, but like someone like Sam Simmons, who I love watching. He, there's a, a bit in one of his shows, this absurdist Australian comedian, where he um, spotlit um, a pine cone being tugged up a wall on a piece of string. 
And it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And some of it was just sheer commitment to it. Some was the fact that half the audience hated it, uh, and all the comedians loved it. Like, and the, the sheer chutzpah for him to to do it when he knew half of them were going to hate it. So I admire that immensely, and I love watching someone like that and going, "How did he, in the depths of his bedroom, or on his drive to work, or in his shower, think you know it's going to be funny, an illuminated pine cone going up a wall?" See, when I watch. Kind of, if I watch Tommy, or if I watch you, if I watch Chris Kent, you know, and something I see them doing a bit. A lot of the time, because a lot of that is based in real life, I go, oh, I, I, he saw that, yeah, and and we're storytellers. We're storytellers. I, I, I knew, I know where that came from. I really like that bit, and I think, oh, that's that's how he came up with it. But for the stuff that's so far removed from what you do, I think that's massively entertaining to watch. Fully cognizant of the fact that it's not your approach. Mm, yeah, it is the um, the way a golfer uh, <laughs> respects the boxer. Yeah, that it's like I could never do that. Uh, that but, that's way more impressive. But I think that uh, I think that sometimes you can you can do both. Sometimes, in, in, if you are very kind of off the wall, I have seen off the, like very absurd acts. Not do well one night and do in front of a mainstream audience and do very well the next night. And all they did was they moved their most accessible material to the front mm. and they got the audience and the audience loved them after five minutes because it, it, it required no effort. So there you have it. That's the short version of my conversation with Neil Delamere. And there's a lot more in this as we talk about the potential for cancel culture to as Neil puts it, do some offence archaeology into your career. And given that we've both been telling jokes for the guts of 20 years, what are the chances that they're going to dig back into the archive of stuff on either of us and decide that was unacceptable, your career is over? We go into a big discussion about that over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. We get into the early days of the panel and how it all came to an end and what Neil really sees as the future for uh, him in stand-up comedy and much, much more. Patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. For the price of a pint each week, you will get three extra large episodes. One, the running podcast with Sonia Sullivan on a Tuesday. Marion McKeown, the Irishman in America podcast every Friday. And a ton more stuff, including my own stand-up special recorded at Vicker Street just before the world went crazy notions 11 can only be found on patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad just like the excel version of this episode i'll be back with sonia back running next week on tuesday to talk about that and an awful lot more tina and mikey make this episode possible as do our supporters brian Connolly is on sound come on over and hear the rest of it